You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Esther, chapter 4. Esther 4. If you've lived for at least a little while on this earth, you've likely had a defining moment in your life. If you've lived a long while, you probably have had several where a life-altering event happens to you, where a life-changing decision has to be made. Moments where what you do and how you will respond will dramatically change the trajectory of your life forever. And as we come to our text today in Esther chapter 4, we've come to the defining moment in the story. And our hero Esther has been brought to this moment through God's quiet providence. That's the title of our current sermon series, God's Quiet Providence. And I like that title because it's through quiet providence that God typically rules and governs the world. Yes, sometimes God breaks into history in in obviously supernatural ways, the parting of Red Seas, raining down fire from heaven, but more often than not, God works subtly and quietly and yet just as powerfully through the weaving together and the orchestration of more natural events. What we discover by reading Esther is that the purposes of God are being accomplished through a series of situations that look like random and disconnected events, through a time where it seems like God is very distant through people and situations that are very flawed and very imperfect, where even the forces of evil seem to be having their way. But all the while, everything that is happening is being woven together in the background in such a way that God fulfills His purposes and the entire Jewish race will be rescued from destruction. And even though the events of Esther happened in a faraway place, in a faraway land a long time ago, nevertheless... These events in this book confront us with very fundamental and very urgent questions that are very, very relevant to us this morning. Like, how do you live as someone who believes in and belongs to this God of providence in a world that thinks about reality in a totally different way? How is Esther who's become married to this pagan king, how is she to navigate the reality that she has a Persian name, Esther, which is probably linked to the pagan goddess Ishtar. She has this Persian name, and yet her birth name is Hebrew, Hadassah, a name associated with her Jewish identity and her faith, a name that points to her belonging to the people of God, and she's being pulled in two directions, and she doesn't really know who she is. Is she going to come clean? Is she going to at long last identify with the God of her fathers? Will she fully and openly embrace her heritage and her faith? And will she embrace God's global mission? Or will she settle for a quiet and comfortable and safe and lavish and rich existence as the queen of the empire? And what does all this have to do with us today? So with questions like that on the line, will you please stand with me now? At Harbin's church, we like to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. And let's read this together, Esther chapter 4. God's Word says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. 
He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will find escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. Father God, I come to the pulpit trembling this morning. This is your word. And this is a weighty and serious thing. And I am a flawed, a very flawed and imperfect messenger. And likewise, my brothers and sisters here are flawed and imperfect hearers. So, Father, have mercy on all of us. And speak to us this morning through your word, in spite of the messenger and in spite of the hearers. Your Holy Spirit has the power to do what none of us can do, which is illuminate the text before us and to speak to us through your holy and inspired word. So help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Chapter 4 begins in a very dark moment, a moment of tremendous difficulty, a moment of apparent hopelessness, a moment where God seems to be very distant and very far away. Jewish people are living under the thumb of a wicked, godless, pagan king, 
Ahasuerus, you're going to hear me flip back and forth between names, Ahasuerus and Xerxes, same guy. Xerxes is a little easier to say, so sometimes I might prefer to say that. In chapter 1, King Xerxes, in a fit of rage, kicks Queen Vashti off the throne. In chapter 2, he launches this large-scale search for a replacement queen, and out of all the women rounded up, Esther wins favor with the king, and suddenly this obscure young Jewish orphan becomes queen of the most powerful empire on the planet. But her cousin Mordecai urges her to keep her Jewish identity a secret. And this is evidence of a kind of spiritual apathy. Pastor Steve made a great case for this in the sermons leading up to this one. I would encourage you to go back and and listen to his sermons over the past few weeks as he discusses the the interesting decisions that Esther and Mordecai make and some of the the compromises that, that they make. Instead of being a bold witness for the God of Israel like some of the other heroes of the Bible, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Mordecai and Esther do the exact opposite. They blend into the pagan culture around them. They keep their faith secret, and their goal is simply to keep their heads low and stay under the radar. We're just going to avoid trouble, and we're not going to wear our faith, our identity on our sleeves, and maybe we can make things more advantageous for us by just blending in with the world. But this desire to keep their Jewishness a secret is not only evidence of spiritual apathy, but it's also the first bit of evidence that there is this undercurrent of anti-Semitism in the empire, and that leads to chapter 3, where we meet a high-ranking official in the king's court named Haman. And if there's a strain of anti-Semitism in Persia, Haman is the embodiment of that attitude. And there arises this conflict between Haman and Mordecai. Mordecai ends up telling some people that he's a Jew. And those people end up passing on that little juicy tidbit to Haman. And when Haman learns that Mordecai is Jewish, he resolves that he will not only do away with Mordecai, but that he will commit genocide and annihilate all the Jews. And what's worse, Haman has the king's ear, and he gets the king to agree. And so as we get to chapter 4, the news of the imminent destruction of the Jews is circulating throughout the empire. It's a dark time. There's no way they can fight back against the most powerful empire on the planet, and everyone knows it. They're as good as dead. And in this difficult situation, in this defining moment that Mordecai and Esther have been placed in, three things become clear. Three realities that confront them, and they must either receive and embrace those realities or turn away and reject them. Uh, These three realities were true for them in their world. They are true for you in your world. And one of those realities is that we're faced with one choice, because no man can serve two masters. Chapter 3 ended on a real cliffhanger. This decree goes out proclaiming this impending slaughter of the Jews. The city of Susa is thrown into confusion, and this confusion spreads outside of Susa and and goes throughout the empire. You can look at uh, verse 3 there in chapter 4. It says, In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, There there is this kind of sorrowful activity going on everywhere, but the focus is on one particular man who's at the center of this storm, none other than Mordecai himself, verses 1 and 2. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, 
Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. That last statement is very interesting. Persian kings didn't like outward expressions of grief. You give a hint that you might be upset with the king's rule, you could lose your head. This helps us to better understand Esther's reaction coming up here in verse 4. And Esther, by the way, has been oblivious to all of this. She's been sheltered away. She's been isolated in the palace. She's being caught up being a, a, a Persian queen. She's living the life. She's doing her thing. She's taking Mordecai's advice. She's hitting her Jewish identity. And so far, that's worked out pretty well for her. She's so far removed from the people of God that she is the only Jewish person described as not being in a state of mourning. She has to hear about everything secondhand. Look at verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Esther knows how the king feels about people looking sad and making a scene, especially at the entrance to the gate. And she's thinking, what's Mordecai doing? He should be drawing this attention to himself. Would somebody please send this dude some fresh clothes? He's going to get himself killed. So she sends the clothes. Mordecai refuses. Esther then sends her servant Haytech to find out what in the world's going on. And in verses 6 through 9, Mordecai explains the situation, begins to plead with Esther to intercede on behalf of her people before the king. Turns out that's not as easy as you might think. Look at Esther's response in verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. That's for me. I haven't been called to come into the king these 30 days. Seriously, Mordecai? You want me to march into the king uninvited, unbeckoned, and do what? Demand he rescind his unrescindable decree? Oh, and by the way, yeah, I know I'm his wife, But things are great between us right now. I have no reason to believe that he will hold out the golden scepter for me. He hasn't wanted to see me for a month now. If I go in there unbidden, I'm a dead woman. I don't think your plan is so great, Mordecai. Easy for you to say out there. Not so easy for me. Look at Mordecai's response in verse 13. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Mordecai says, you won't escape, Esther. You won't escape. You've been able to successfully fly under the radar for years. You've been able to keep your identity and your faith on the down low, and you fooled everyone. You blended in quite nicely. Congratulations. But the charade will not last much longer. You might be queen now, but if Haman's plan succeeds, guess what? You're going down with the rest of us. And Mordecai has come to realize that this kind of lifestyle won't work anymore. You can't have your feet in two worlds. I think that's why by the time you get to chapter 4, Mordecai doesn't care who sees him in his identification with the Jews through his sackcloth and ashes. No, Esther, I don't want the clothes. He doesn't care. And he's forcing a decision that Esther has so far managed to avoid altogether. 
Remember that Esther is the one character in this story with two names, a double identity. Who is she? She's Hadassah, the Jewish peasant girl. And she's Esther, the Persian beauty, royal consort to the most powerful man in the world. But the double life is about to end, and Esther is faced with the hard reality that every single one of us who calls themselves a believer has to face. Namely, there is no belonging to the people of God while living like a child of the world. Let me bring this home to you from the 5th century B.C. to the 21st century A.D. There is no way to be a secret Christian and a public pagan. It won't work. And there are too many people in the world who name the name of Christ, who give lip service to God, who honor Jesus in one way superficially with their mouths, yet their hearts are far from Him. When they're around other Christians, they act holy. When they're around unbelievers, they act like them. They are spiritual chameleons, trying to have both feet in two worlds, and it will not work forever. Esther had to make a choice. Whose side is she on? Who is she going to identify with? She had to make a choice then. We have to make a choice now. I wonder if there's somebody here this morning living the double life. On one level, maybe naming the name of Christ, yet blending in with the world. If that's you, know that God has brought you here this morning to tell you that it is time to make a definitive decision. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no middle ground. There is no third way. There is no neutral, demilitarized zone where you can safely sign a truce with sin. Jesus Christ demands your maximum allegiance. He demands that you either be all in for Him or that you go your own way and abandon Him. So choose this day whom you will serve. Now, you might say, Deemer, that's scary. If I'm completely and totally sold out for Jesus, that's going to be really hard for me. That's going to be really tough. I might face rejection. I might face ridicule. I might lose some friends. I might lose my job. That's true. But it gets worse than that. If you're in some parts of the world today, like Iraq... You'll get your throat slit for identifying with Jesus. But Jesus never said that this wouldn't be hard. Instead, Jesus tells you to count the cost. Be sure that you know that the road of following Christ will include you choosing His side over the world. And that road will be hard. Will include affliction. Will include suffering. Will include rejection. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 Now, someone may naturally ask, well, if it's that hard, (laughs) then why choose Christ? Why choose God's way? And my answer is that because the payoff is so much better now and in eternity. Jesus says in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. He says elsewhere in Mark chapter 8, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So you've got the world on one side. You've got Jesus on the other side. You can only choose one. What's the better deal? What do you think the better deal is? You get all the world. Uh, you get all the money. You get all the comfort. You get all the sinful pleasures of this life. You live to be 90 years old, well-respected by the world, good friendships, unlimited wealth, maximum earthly comfort, but no Jesus. How does that sound? Does that sound good to you? Jesus says that's a bad deal. That's pretty arrogant of Jesus, don't you think? For him to think himself a superior and more worthy and more satisfying treasure than all those other things, that, that would be arrogant if it wasn't true. You have the whole world without Jesus. Jesus says it's a bad deal, and you've totally missed out, and you've wasted your life. On the other hand, you lose everything, your money, your comforts, your life, and in exchange, all you get is Christ. Jesus says that's a no-brainer. That's a way better deal. Because the value of Jesus Christ infinitely outweighs anything else that you could ever have. So choose this day whom you will serve. Esther is at a definitive moment, at a crossroads. There's a choice she's being faced with, and Mordecai is challenging her. Esther, you can continue to try to fly under the radar and blend in with the world. And I know I gave you that advice in the first place. Sorry about that. I was wrong. My bad. You can enjoy the comforts of that world for a little while longer. Or you can come out of the shadows and take your stand with God and God's people. Don't put this off any longer. Choose this day whom you will serve. One choice. No man can serve two masters. But also we see that there is one hope. And that's God is for his people. God is for his people. Look at what Mordecai says in verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. That is an amazing statement. If you keep silent, relief and deliverance will arrive from another place. Not might arrive from another place. Not will possibly arrive from another place. Not it will arise from another place if we're lucky. No. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Period. The times are very dark, and Mordecai is very desperate for Esther to help. But in the midst of it all, Mordecai has the rock-solid confidence and faith that the Jews will be preserved. And what we begin to discover is that, yes, yes, the road for any who would be God's people is a hard road for Jews in Persia and for believers in this room. It's true that the road is hard. But it is equally true that for God's own, there is an unshakable hope. God is for His people. And because God is a God who is sovereign, who works providentially to accomplish everything He decrees, the outcome is never in doubt. Look again at Mordecai's words. There's no doubt here. Relief and deliverance will arise from another place. 
All the might of the empire is mustered against him, and yet he speaks with absolute, confident assurance. Why? Notice that in the, in the face of the threat of total annihilation for the Jews at the hands of an ancestral enemy, Haman the Agagite, in the face of the supposedly irrevocable decree of King Ahasuerus to destroy them, the response of Mordecai and the people is weeping and fasting and mourning. Look at verse 3 again. It says, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and lamenting. Interesting language. That that kind of language is identical, word for word, with words from the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, which is a passage where God is calling His people to return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with lamenting. The idea of fasting and weeping and lamenting is not just about grief, but it's about repentance and faith and a returning to the Lord. It's, it's about heartfelt and urgent prayer to the only one who can rescue. And that's why Joel chapter 2, after calling the people to fast and weep and lament, goes on to say, For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And that term, steadfast love, refers not to generic love. It's instead covenantal language. God's steadfast love has everything to do with His faithfulness to keep His promises to His people. Joel says God is abounding in steadfast love and He relents over disaster. And so what we see in Mordecai and the people, it's not just grief over the impending genocide, it's also a demonstration of prayerful repentance and hope. It's a humble return to the Lord. It's serious and urgent and constant prayer to a God who is gracious and merciful and abounding in love. Hear the echo of the prophet Joel, not only in the actions of Mordecai and his Jewish brethren, but even in Mordecai's words to Esther. Joel chapter 2 verse 14 says, Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? And Mordecai says to Esther in verse 14, Who knows? but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Where does Mordecai get hope in the face of the hatred of Haman and the decree of this powerful king? Answer, Mordecai knows the promises of God. Mordecai knows the covenant faithfulness of the Lord who has sworn to relent when his people turn back to him. He knew of the character of God, and as a Jew, he would, have, he would have known all the promises of God. Since his youth, Mordecai would have been told the story of his, na- of his people and how God appeared to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and made a promise that said, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He would have remembered promises like Psalm 72 that forecast the rule and reign of the Messiah from one end of the earth to the other. Now, if the promises of God are deeply embedded in Mordecai's heart. He, he's, he must be thinking, this is a bad situation. My people are under the threat of extinction. But on the other hand, he's thinking, but God can't lie. God's good. God's faithful. God is a covenant-keeping God, and God is sovereign. If Psalm 72 is to come true, if the world will be blessed through our people, how is that going to happen if Xerxes wipes us out? 
So I'm either going to believe what Xerxes says, or I'm going to believe what God says. I'm going to, I'm going to let either Xerxes' decree rule my life and overwhelm me with despair, or I'm going to bank my hope on God's decree and what He has promised. And I'm so confident in what God has said, Esther, that if you stand by and do nothing, God's going to deliver us. He's faithful. He will save our people. There is no other explanation for Mordecai's bold and audacious declaration of guaranteed deliverance for the Jews apart from Mordecai laying hold on the promises of a God whom he knows is providentially governing the universe. You may ask, what's that got to do with me? (laughs) Everything, if you're a believer. If you are in Christ, you are part of God's people. The Apostle Peter says of you, says of every believer in this room... In 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the Apostle Paul, responding to that great mercy, writes in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who shall be against us? He says, even through affliction and suffering and, the perse- and persecution and even death, we, we, the people of God, are more than conquerors as, as God works all things together for the good of his people. And just as Mordecai's only refuge was laying hold to the promises of God for his people, it's the only, it's the only refuge you can bank on today. In life's most desperate moments, the only thing that can keep you from being swallowed up by despair, the only thing that can keep you going, is to lay hold of the promises and purposes of a sovereign God. We just sang about it a little while ago. I will stand on every promise of your word. If you do not stand on his promises, you will not stand at all. If I'm fearful of being abandoned by God, I lay hold of Hebrews 13.5, where God promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. If I'm worried about my material needs being met, I lay hold of Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If I feel like I cannot go on another step in this difficulty, in this sickness, in this marriage, in this job, in this persecution, I lay hold of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. We as God's people are strengthened and emboldened and sustained and satisfied by the abundant promises in God's word that he will protect and preserve his people because he is for us and not against us. That is the one hope that we can bank our lives on. One choice, one hope, and also we see one mission. You are God's instrument for such a time as this. Sometimes God's sovereignty and control scares Christians. And if God were an evil, capricious God, I suppose we would have every reason to be terrified. But if the God who is in control is a good God and a good Father who always does right by His children, who always keeps His promises, then the doctrine of God's providence should give us great hope. And indeed, it should give us great purpose. For if this God has... According to Acts 17, 26, determine even the times and places 
that you and I should live. That means that where you are now in life is no accident, but that you and I have been brought to this moment in this time for a reason, for a purpose. Now, I love Mordecai's theology here. Mordecai brings together two very important biblical themes that often we want to separate, which is the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man to make choices that honor and glorify God. On the one hand, you've got this, the absolute sovereignty of a God that through providence upholds and governs everything. Mordecai says relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. The doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty over all things is a resounding theme throughout the Bible. Over and over again, God does whatever He pleases, the psalmist says. The prophet Isaiah says, as the Lord of hosts has sworn... As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. In other words, if God's determined something's going to happen, it's a done deal. It's happening. And Mordecai knows this, hence his great confidence. He knows what God has said and what he has decreed about his people. And it gives him hope and it sustains him even in the midst of his grief. But that begs the question, where does that leave us? If God is sovereign and controls the world, how now shall we live? Esther chapter 4 tells us how now shall we live. Yes, we see the absolute sovereignty of God in the book of Esther. But we do not see it at the expense of the absolute responsibility of human beings as his creatures in their respective vocations and callings. Esther 4 teaches us that our responsibilities cannot be denied by an appeal to his sovereignty. We're not off the hook because God is sovereign. We can't just say, well, God's in control. He's sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do no matter what I do. God doesn't need me, so I'm just going to go home, watch TV now, and stay in my little bubble. Yes, Mordecai believes in the absolute sovereignty and control of God, but Mordecai is not a hyper-Calvinist. When Mordecai hears of this decree to kill the Jews, he doesn't invite Esther to join him in singing a round of Que Sera, Sera. Instead, he urges Esther to act. Do something. And when Esther resists, Mordecai doesn't give up. He pushes harder. Which brings us to the most famous line in this whole book. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And here we find the beautiful, mind-boggling, and biblical intersection between the sovereign providence of God and the responsibility of His creatures. Notice that the provident sovereignty of God is not meant to lull us into a kind of fatalistic, passive inactivity. Whatever will be, will be. It's actually meant to do the exact opposite. If God really is in the details of Esther's life, and my life, and your life, if life is not random and God is not arbitrary, but is purposeful in all that He does, and in all that He allows, if He has providentially brought you and I to this place in this moment in time, that should have massive ramifications on how we think about our own situation and position in life. God's sovereignty isn't meant to negate our sense of responsibility. It actually increases it. Because now, you are where you are, not simply as a result of purposeless 
random chance forces that have no meaning whatsoever. God has, has you where you are for a reason. He has directed your steps and brought you here for a purpose. And Mordecai is urging Esther to examine her life in light of the knowledge of the providence of God. Is this coincidence, Esther? Come on, let's, let's think about this. Is this coincidence? Why are you here? Just because you're a pretty face? Is that it? Well, why do you have a pretty face? Is that a coincidence? Why are we here in this moment in time? How might your situation serve the purposes of God? How might you be used by Him in your circumstance to honor Him, to serve Him, to give Him glory? Yes, Mordecai believes God is in control and that He will deliver. But Mordecai knows that God accomplishes His work through means, through earthly instruments like people's choices and actions to accomplish His purposes. And Mordecai is saying, you know what, Esther? God's going to do this. And if you're silent, relief's going to come from another place. Your lack of involvement isn't going to hinder him. He, he could do this another way. But you know what? It could be you. You could be that instrument. I think Mordecai's question and challenge speaks to us today. You are not queen over an empire. But God has placed you in certain roles, in certain positions. He has given you certain spouses, certain children, certain jobs, certain friends, certain enemies, certain challenges, a certain church. He's placed you in a unique position for a unique purpose. Don't think for a second that you are where you are by accident. And Mordecai's question to Esther should also cause us to think and reflect and ask, for what reason did God place me in this job, in this marriage, in this church? God uses means. How can I be a means for God here? How can I be a force for good? How can God use me to be a blessing in this situation, in this marriage that is not everything I had hoped for, in this job that I hate? with these relationships that God has given me and the role that I'm currently in. Sometimes people will say, you might have heard this, you might have, you might have said this. Oh, if I could just get out of this situation that I'm in right now, this job that I hate, if, if I could just get out of this place that's bringing me down, then I could just get on with really serving God and doing big things for Him. No. The time to serve your God is right now. You are not where you are by accident. He's brought you to this place, to this moment, for such a time as this, to serve Him in a unique way. And suddenly, in her mind, all of the lights go on for Esther. And notice that her recognition of the sovereign purposes of God doesn't lull her into passivity. It does the opposite. It emboldens her into action. For the first three chapters, Esther is very passive. Others are the movers and shakers and big players in the story. But from this point forward in the story, Esther takes the lead and Mordecai and everybody else fades into the background. The challenge to make that choice, that one choice, and embrace her true identity. To serve God rather than the world. The encouragement that comes from the hope of God's certain deliverance, that one sure hope. 
and the call for her to consider her part in God's redemptive mission. Those three realities, one choice, one hope, one passion, or one mission, yeah, passion too, one mission transforms Esther from passive victim to bold heroine. And I love her resolve. And I'm inspired by her sudden transformation. Look at this in verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Now, by the way, based on what we've been saying earlier, they're not just going without food for fun. There's spiritual things going on here. There's prayer going on here, laying hold of the promises of God. Repentance. And then look what she goes on to say. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Better to perish serving the Lord and doing what is right than to languish and waste my life in a comfortable place. And she steps forward to be a saving mediator for her people, even if it may cost her her life. If I perish, I perish. And embracing and fulfilling God's great mission, fulfilling God's great purposes, being a part of what God is doing in the world, that becomes more important to her than life itself. Those words of courage and faith and heroism echo the words of another mediator, another Savior. Centuries later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ in the darkest hour of his life, facing the extinguishing of his life, with the agony and shame of the cross before him, surpasses and fulfills the humble submission and resolve of Esther. Jesus, facing death, said, Father, not my will, but your will, your will, your will be done. And while Esther risked everything to intercede for her people and lived, we have a better mediator, one who in the fullness of time, for such a time and moment as this, did not merely risk it all, he gave it all, even his very life for his people. Esther's death was not necessary for the people's salvation, but Jesus's was. He took on God's punishment that we all deserve for our, our sins so that whoever places their trust in Jesus will find their sins paid for and forgiven. Thank God that we are saved by grace through faith and not through works or our own efforts. Thank you for the cross, Jesus. God will use Esther to rescue an entire nation from extinction so that from that nation Christ would come and so that you could, in Decula, Georgia, in 2016, sit in this room and hear about the hope that is found in Christ. You're not here by accident. You're not here by chance. You're here through the sovereign purposes and providence of God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've been brought here this morning for such a time as this. And as with Esther, you now have a choice. You can turn away in fear, or you can step out in faith and place your life in the hands of a good and sovereign Lord who loves sinners enough to offer up His Son as a sacrifice for their sins. Will you believe in Christ? Will you place your trust in what He has done on the cross for you? Will you receive His righteousness? 
in exchange for your wickedness. If you're a believer this morning, be encouraged. You have made that one choice to follow Him. And for that reason, you have that one hope that you can bank your life on. That one hope found in God and in all of His glorious promises for you. And the sovereign God has, through His quiet providence, brought you where you are for such a time as this to participate in His one mission. His mission to offer God's glorious redemption to a world in need. To point the world to Jesus so that He may be glorified and so that others may receive and enjoy the life that you now have. For the people of God, at the end of the day, there can really be only one choice, one hope, one mission. And I hope that you will embrace all three today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And thank You so much that you even offered a choice. <laughs> the choice before us is to choose this day whom we will serve. The choice this day is to, is to have trust and put our faith in Christ and repent or perish. You didn't even have to give us that. We all could have perished. You could have consigned all of us to destruction. And yet you did offer up your Son to provide a way of escape for all who call on your name. And we thank you so much for that. And Father... I pray for those of us who do believe, and yet every single believer in this room is still flawed and imperfect and still battles sin. None of us obeys perfectly. None of us does the right thing all the time, and we have stumbled so often. Father, I pray that you will, that you will further regenerate us and further conform us to the image of your Son so that when we enter those moments where we must make a choice, are we going to go God's way or are we going to go the world's way? That we would be more and more faithful in saying, I choose God. I choose to go His way. I choose to believe what He has said. Father, thank You for the hope that You offer through the Scriptures. So much hope. So many glorious promises. Promises of protection. Promises of provision. Promises of strength. Promises of Your constant care. Promises of a, of a better life to come. Father, I pray that you would make us a people that know your word so much that if you cut us, we would bleed Bible and we would bleed the promises of God. We would just know them. They would just be in our, in our being so that when we go through dark times, maybe not as dark as what Mordecai went through, but maybe. When we go through dark and difficult times, we'd bank our hope on your promises, Father, and we would not be swallowed up by despair. And Father, I pray that you would help us to embrace your mission. Ultimately, your mission is to bring glory and honor to your name and to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be faithful in embracing that mission, even if it means ridicule, even if it means losing some relationships and rejection and all those sorts of things. God, even if it means death, give us that faithful resolve to embrace your mission. And thank you for including us in it. In Jesus' name, amen.